You join us here on our perch at the far end of the bar. He's Ben. He's Richard. And before you joined us, oh, we were talking about a myriad of different things, but including <laughs> fishing. Oh, yeah, a little bit of fishing. A little bit of fishing, because I, I, I was thinking about this, watching the old fishing programme with um, Bob Mortimer. Yeah. Uh, the other, which is just great, isn't it's it? A it's a joy, just yeah. Just a joy and a delight. Two, two grown men, uh, as you and I uh, very often do, acting like children. Yeah. And uh, just, just the beauty of it as well, and the pace in a world that's moving so fast that a half hour of kind of serenity and silliness and Bob's problems with gravity and uh, it's just uh, it's just an absolute joy I love it you see you see I think that I would be if we weren't fishing mm. and I haven't fished since I was 50 mm. uh, and I was introduced to fishing by my great uncle who was a, a fine angler and a very keen angler and um he gave me a half-decent fishing rod mm-hmm. uh, at the age of about 12. And for about three years, you know, I would, I would troll up to... I think it was the hardware store where they used to sell the maggots. Okay. Um, and get the fishing license, get, the, you know, half a pound of maggots or whatever it was. And, uh, and off I would go on my bicycle a-fishing. But it's, mm. it's been a while. It's been 40-odd years since I dangled a rod over a fast-flowing river or, or non-flowing lake. Do you know what? Funnily enough, I, I did some earlier this summer. Did you? Yes. We had a holiday in Wales, and the house we rented, you have access to, uh, to your own little private bit of the River Typhi over there in Cardiganshire. Is that how you say it? Typhi? Yeah. Took, uh, took me rod, cleaned it off, put, put some fresh line on, and um, on the first day we were there, the Saturday, I'd kind of got me lure out because you fish what you spin there for. All um, oh, right, okay. This is, this is the silvery sparkly thing. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, okay. They, they, you fish for sewing, as the Welsh call sea trout, and uh, salmon as well, and uh, brown trout. And um, the first day I was there, a man came along, big bull of a Welshman, lovely man. And they gave me all the tips. And uh, by the end of the week, I hadn't caught a single thing. No. No, I'm just, I don't know. I just... Is, is this down to technique or the fact that all the um, sea trout and salmon had gone back to the sea? No, they were there. I could see them. They were hiding behind rocks, looking at you, going, ha-ha. Yeah. But I'll tell you what, I had such a beautiful week because, you know, you've got your own little bit of river. No one comes and bothers you. Were you standing um, on the bank or were you standing in the river? I was uh, doing a bit of both. Yeah. Have you got yeah. the waders? No, no. It was lovely warm water, so I just uh, had me uh, wellies on and my shorts. I haven't got all the gear. I couldn't, I've got none of the gear and no idea. I, I seem to remember that, that didn't you, uh, in your capacity as best man yes. for, for a mate, um, take everybody on a fishing trip where you had to not only uh, provide the entertainment... Uh, beverages, etc., etc., but also the fishing equipment. Um, well, well, I had to arrange for everyone to have fishing equipment, so I kind of sourced where people might get it from and what have you. So, um, but that was easy. That was carp fishing on a carp lake, ah. where it's you know they they jump out of the water at you. I have visions because do you remember you used to go into uh, a shop? I don't know whether they still do this now, but you go into a shop and and. Um, on a section of the wall, there would be 
children's fishing rods, which mm. was a little bit of plastic with um, a bit of twine on it, hermetically sealed in more plastic. And you'd take it out and you'd do, you'd do the old casting thing and it would break in half or it wouldn't last very long no. anyway. It certainly was not fit for purpose, as the politicians would say. Not that the politicians are good for purpose, but don't get me started <laughs> on that. Um, uh, when, when you told me this, I thought you'd gone out, because it was like a Jolly Boys outing slash, um, what are they called, a stag do? Stag do, yeah. I, I thought you would all be fishing with these, like, these plastic rods that were no more than four feet long. No, no, I, we went online and bought some lovely stuff. Um, great big carp, proper carp rods with the right reels and the hooks and uh, you get, they're called boilies I think. Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, we all camped, you drove, you basically drove your car down to this complex, it was near Gillingham I think in Dorset and um, then you drove down to the lake, like they had the, they had the, a series of four or five lakes and so four of them were for really good serious fishermen who knew what they were doing. And then there was this other lake we were on. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, you park your car, put, pitch your tent next to your car, yeah. have a barbecue, a few beers. That was great fun. The thing I remember the most about those fishing trips is the wildlife. The fish were kind of incidental. Like the swans coming in to land on the water and then taking off again with that great effort and splashing yeah. and flapping. Amazing. And then in Wales... Again, I saw fish and, you know, they were there. But what I really remember is the kingfisher darting about over on the other side of the bank in front of me. And one morning I got down there, sat down on my chair, and an otter popped up right in front of me. I mean, I've never seen an otter in the wild before. That was beautiful. Um, you, are, I'm a, you are a man of the country. Yeah, I do love the country. I do love the country. Anyway, I didn't catch the otter because that's illegal. So... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and you didn't catch any fish either. I didn't, no, I didn't. I caught, I caught a tree. That's okay. Obviously. Can I interest you in a drink? Mm, well, I'm always wary of your drinks, but let's see what... The last one was good. That was... Uh, turned out to be Coca-Cola. Yes, it did. Yeah, you don't mind that. Uh, can I offer you, a, can I offer you a, a glass of the Green Fairy? The absinthe? Ooh. Yeah. It, it strikes me that this is something that you know of, well, or, have, uh, or have some experience of. Well. This will be the first one, <laughs> apart from the Diet Coke. I mean, I worked in an Irish bar for a while. That's the green leprechaun in there. You, have the, you have the pachin. Yeah. And, uh, and then, yeah, one night after hours, obviously, you know, we're having a little late drink, and uh, yeah, out comes the absinthe. And where was the... Was it locked in a safe or was it just underneath the bar? One of the other guys had brought it in from, uh, from home See, in his he, satchel. He, because it... I mean, we know that artists, poets and the such like in, in, in France, late 1800s, got addicted to the stuff. It went all across Europe and eventually most of Europe and indeed the United States of America banned the stuff mm. because of its hallucinogenic and psychoactive uh, properties but I didn't realize that it's not banned and has never been banned in this country mm. so although surreptitiously uh, the absinthe came out when you were working in the bar there was no need at all 
or the surreptitious nature of its production. I was under the impression absinthe was illegal. No, it's not. Well, it, 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 as I say, across Europe it, and, and in the US it was banned. There were laws banning it. But in this country, no, it's not. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether that was because it never really took hold here. We, we had gin. We had Mother's Ruin here, and that, yeah. um, and that eventually did for us. I, I think we're still suffering the after-effects of um, 400 years of drinking gin. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the Mother's Ruin, uh, most definitely, was, was something that I think people looked at at one time. Uh, although gin is really popular again. Now, my, son, my son uh, loves all the different varieties, and every time mm. you produce uh, a bottle of something with... Um, uh, a mandarin or a rhubarb fragrance added as well. Um, he says, "Have you got the appropriate tonic?" What? So you have yes. So you have the gin, but then you have to have the appropriate tonic to go with it. You do? Yeah. I mean, you can just splash anything over in there, and I suppose it will do. But for the aficionado, you know, the man or woman who knows their gin. You not only have to have uh, the uh, many and various different flavors, which are now um, out there on the shelves, but you also have to have an appropriate tonic to go with the flavor. It's no good, you know, having your... um, uh, See, I'm not really across it all. Are you across it? No, I didn't really know there were different sorts of tonics. Oh, yes, there are. And and I didn't know this until my son um, started to drink the stuff, because I've always been a Scotch man. Uh, as indeed yourself. Um, because, I mean, I've never put a mixer in a single malt anyway, but oh, but with gin, it's different. I'm not a big fan of gin, personally. Are you, do you like a gin? No, I would say that I'm not, but I've, I've had, I, and I do have a sip mm. just to taste, when, because they're now served in um, um, what seems to be a goldfish bowl. Yeah. This enormous great big thing <laughs> arrives at the table, uh, and if you're out with the boys and you order a gin, and you know the uh, the, the aquarium arrives with some cucumber floating in it, mm. and and a drop of gin, and then the the tonic is poured in over the top, you'd feel a nelly. I would anyway. It's just the fact that you get a whopping great big glass on a stem, mm. which very nice stem, and then you have lots of fruit and vegetable floating. It's just a, never appealed to me. That's I'm pretty much like that with a cocktail. Couldn't be bothered. Put no. an umbrella in something, not interested. Yeah. I have had some interesting evenings on the cocktail stay. I've had some interesting evenings under an umbrella. Yeah. But that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> I, re- I remember one holiday sipping a zombie from a holdout. Now, what it would have been, a melon, a coconut, a, I, God only knows. This enormous fruit thing container. What is it about zombie movies? In what way? Well, uh, uh, The Walking Dead, for example. A long-running series which people are as keen on as they were Game of Thrones. Mm. Or Downton Abbey. Yeah, it was big. Dead people walking slowly, gnawing on you. Lovely. (laughs) I watched the first... Pretty sure I watched the first series of The Walking Dead, which wasn't necessarily the great success that it later became. But I gave up. After I'm, I'm not a big fan of that. I'm not a big fan of um, vampire movies because it's kind of 
all the same, isn't it? <laughs> Did I say that out loud? <laughs> and zombie movies, certainly, I feel, are all the same. There are definitely familiar tropes yeah, in yeah. most zombie movies, aren't there? Yeah. That's why I really enjoyed um, Shaun of the Dead. Because they yes. kind of skewered a few of yes, those tropes indeed. and did it very well, didn't they? They did. They, 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 they used the tropes to comedic advantage. I'll tell you what it's made me think of. The health and safety manager at one of the uh, places that I worked. It was, a, it was a rough and ready sort of a place. Not necessarily up to date with the latest regulations. But what he did have, very meticulously prepared, was um, a kit in case of a zombie invasion. Ah. Uh, we were ready to fend them off at a, a drop of a hat. Wouldn't have been a problem. He was the same chap, by the way. I just remembered this about him. He was the same chap. He was the. Uh, he had to make a note if you had an accident. You'd have to right. write it in the accident book, right? And I cut my finger on a Stanley blade. And in the book, he wrote, "Ben must be more careful." may or may not be familiar with the uh, next uh, particular little gem that I've found for you, Richard. But I hope I'm not. Let's see. Have you ever heard of Clever Hands, the talking horse? No. Right then. We're going back to early 1900. He's a math teacher by the name of Wilhelm von Osten. Wilhelm von Osten. <laughs> yeah, I don't war. know. Me und Wilhelm. You know, back in the day, <laughs> I should have. It was so true. much fun, you know. He With was the talking horse and the maths. Oh, <laughs> the equations. Oh. Okay, we've slipped into Hermann the Camp German from <laughs> the Eurovision song contest. Anyway, Wilhelm von Osten became bored of his normal work. He became tired of guiding his fellow Germans through complicated equations such as if there are two towels on the poolside, how many English people have you annoyed? So he decided <laughs> that instead he would see if he could educate a horse. Ah. So Herr von Osten decided that Hans the horse should learn maths. He spent four years putting the horse through its paces, patiently coaching the horse to do sums. And then came the time to display the skills of this amazing animal to the entire world. Ladies and gentlemen, mesdames and messieurs, dames and herren, behold, the mathematical horse. Von Austin would ask Hans, the horse, basic sums, and the horse would clippity-clop the answer. All right. Not only this, the horse also apparently demonstrated an understanding of the German language, much like you. He would use his hooves to tap out the names of people. One clock for A, two for B, etc., etc. Obviously, run into problems when he tried to spell out the name of the inventor Ferdinand von Zeppelin. He was <laughs> absolutely knackered by the time he got to the end the of that Borussia one. Munching glad bag. <laughs> <laughs> he needs some extra oats and a lie down. So, his reputation, obviously, right? You were early uh, 1900s. Life is uh, interesting in its own way, but the reputation of a horse that can do maths and spell out the German language spreads 
far and wide and large crowds would turn up to see him trotting out the answers and not just Egypt's like me and you right these are scientists and biologists and otherists also swore blind that this was the most amazing thing that the world had ever seen up to this point of course of course all was not quite as it seemed extensive tests showed that it turned out that Hans wasn't actually working out the mass believe it or not Instead, he was reacting to the cues from subtle facial and physical movements of Herr von Osten and other people that had been training him. So the trainer would let him clop away until the correct number or the right letter was reached, then he'd at wink. which point they'd give him a sugar cube. Ah, stop him. If Hans was given a sum which the trainer didn't know the answer to, Hans couldn't answer the sum. So... Still a pretty good trick, though, right? Oh, absolutely. You know, to train a, a horse a trick. to, yeah. to clippity-clock. Um, but the people of Germany in the 1900s lacked a sense of humour about the whole thing, and Hans rather unfortunately ended his days as a war horse oh. in the First World War oh. and uh, met uh, an untimely demise, shall we say. Oh, old Hans. Hans the horse. But for a while... He was the talk of the world. Yes. Crikey. Well, the, what a story. It's a beauty, isn't it? What I like, you see, that there is an innocence to that. Going from country fair to country fair, building up an audience, you know, presenting this horse that clippity clops out math for a start. Maths problems. How interesting are they? <laughs> How interesting for a general audience going along to a country fair in the black forest would a, would a horse solving maths problems be how interesting would that be there was a um a recent tom hanks film called news of the world did you see it i haven't seen that one yet no yeah, it's, it's either on the netflix or the amazon prime or one of those and it deal it's an adventure about his character um his character is a man who goes from town to town reading from the papers because papers didn't reach the towns so he would go to a city gather up all the papers then head off for the next few weeks and read what the papers said about different things that were happening across the united states to a vast audience who each paid a nickel to go and hear the news of the world wow what a job it was a thing it that was a thing. great fun. And then, of course, the telegraph arrived, and I don't mean I don't mean the paper, but the telegraph arrived, and um, communications were so much easier. Yeah, so you got news of what was happening three hundred miles away. But there we are. Extraordinary stuff. Got something you want to tell us? Email the far end of the bar at gmail.com or find us on Insta, Twitter, or Facebook using the hashtag TFEOTB. Pub quiz. Always up for a pub quiz. Now, we've just done mathematics, so I think we'll stay on the subject and talk about science, because I'm sure that every student that you knew, that you went to school with, could tell me, and I, no doubt you could tell me, uh. Fourier's law of heat conduction and Hooke's law of elasticity. Yeah. I, we haven't got time now, but, oh, I no, could, but I could go into great detail. But, but you may not <laughs> know that Joseph Fourier 
lived inside a wooden box in his uh, old age. And really? I don't mean a wooden house. I mean the old chap retreated to a wooden box. Well, he wasn't yeah. dead in a coffin? No, no, he lived in a little <laughs> wooden box. Imagine how much more fun science would have been if it had been that sort of thing we got taught instead of those equations and formulas. But, <laughs> but, pub quiz today, fact or fiction, this will test your memory uh, as to whether or not you were listening during science at school. Oh, in big trouble here then. Right, Carry here on. we go. <laughs> I'm sure you're familiar with Archimedes' principle of buoyancy. Yeah. So, fact or fiction, according to Archimedes' principle, a body wholly or partially submerged in liquid is buoyed up by a force equal to the weight of the displaced liquid. The buoyant force depends on the density of the liquid and the volume of the object, but not its shape. Right. Is that fact or fiction? Now, you can have a ponder about that if you like. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I could do. I don't really see much point, but look, I'll have a little cogitate. Run it past me again and uh, can you get in... Plainer English. <laughs> yes. According to Archimedes' principle, a body wholly or partially submerged in a liquid is buoyed up by a force equal to the weight of the displaced liquid. The buoyant force depends on the density of the liquid and the volume of the object, but not its shape. Okay. So, mm, no, it's got to have something to do with its shape. Otherwise, boats would be made of all sorts of weird and wonderful shapes and sizes. The scientific mind is at work here. <laughs> You're witnessing, you are listening to a man using his brain. Do you remember all those people we talked about from Mensa that were going to be tuning in? <laughs> we haven't done the test yet, have we? No, there's a reason for that, and we're <laughs> re-establishing that reason right now. <laughs> Are you going to go fact or fiction on this? I'm going to go... Because I think we'll, we'll, we'll do it now rather than come back, because it's a big read. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go fiction. Fiction! Everything you've just said in the last minute would would point towards fact. And you weren't fiction. <laughs> hold on a minute. I've got confused now. So, hold on. So, it doesn't... What I'm saying is, it it does matter what what shape the thing that is buoyant or not may right. be. Okay. So, that is... Is that fact or fiction? It's a fact. <laughs> right, fact. But not its shape. But, but I said, um, the buoyant force <laughs> depends on the density of the liquid and the volume of the object... But not its shape. Right. So, so you're wrong. Uh, hold on. It the does law. depend on its shape. <laughs> the law seems simple. <laughs> 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 but it is actually not intuitive that objects with equal volume experience the same buoyant force when held underwater. Cubes made of cork and lead would experience the same buoyant force yet would have completely different behaviour. This is because the different ratios of buoyant force to object weight. So if it's heavy, it'll sink. Okay. Well, are we in the same realm as, I remember this blowing my mind when I was a kid, that a tonne of feathers falls at the same rate as a tonne of coal? There you go. But it's a tonne. Yeah. Yeah. Question two. Oh, what? There's another one. Before Albert Einstein came up with the general theory of relativity, which is E equals mc squared, he produced what is known as Einstein's theorem. This states that any two bodies in the universe attract each other with a force that is directly proportional 
to the product of their masses and inversely proportional to the square of the distance between them. Fact or fiction? First things first, I've got a feeling I produced some theorem last night. And... <laughs> this is the angle of the dangle is directly proportional to the throb. <laughs> On the knob, whether you're interested, it's constant. I've got to be honest. I reckon you got about five words in and I totally lost focus. You, you did blanked over, didn't you? <laughs> it's a fiction. In but, fact, that one uh, you'll find is Newton's law of universal gravitation. Nothing to uh, do with Einstein. Yeah, no, I was wondering if it was Newton's law. But this, this one you'll get. This one right. you'll get. Dalton's law of partial pressures states that the total pressure exerted by a mixture of gases in a container is equal to the sum of the separate pressures that each gas would exert if just that single gas occupied the entire volume of the container. You are it's true or false for me? Yeah. No, no, I was really concentrating and that's what that face was. I wasn't nodding off. I was really trying to get my head around what he was saying to me. Didn't help. <laughs> Didn't. <laughs> Yeah. My children are going to listen to this and they're going to understand just oh, what Oh, Dad, of course you know fool. Dalton's law of partial pressures. When they come to me and, and say, can you help me with this homework? No, well, they're not going to come to me and say, no. can you help me with this homework? No point. Uh, I'm going to say, having thought that through thoroughly and absolutely understood what you were saying, I'm going to say, fair... Fact. Yes! <laughs> Mark that on the wall. One! The kids can three. come to see Daddy again <laughs> to ask for his great wisdom. Please don't ask me to show my workings. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Yeah, well, there we, there we are. Unfortunately, I thought I was going to really enjoy uh, physics and chemistry at school. And I think for the first couple of lessons, both of chemistry uh, and physics, I thought this is going to be great. This is, mm. I'm going to be a scientist. I'm going to be, you know, uh, I'm I'm going to be one of the one of the people who push back the boundaries. I shall wear a white coat and impress the world. They will make films about me. Yeah. And then after about three lessons, I thought, I'm not fucking clue what's going on here. <laughs> not. <laughs> not the slightest idea of, and even if they said it slowly mm. the moment that they started putting up equations and it's exactly the same with maths you put up, I can do arithmetic I'm fine at arithmetic yeah. but, but maths proper maths yeah. proper math. I, again I thought I would be fine because they, they, for two lessons, they do it slow. And then suddenly they, it's like learning a foreign language. You, they start by giving you, very slowly, they take you through the foreign languages. And then you think, oh, I can go abroad now, I can speak. I'll be able to make myself understood. And you go away with your half a dozen <laughs> phrases. And you, you say your half a dozen phrases. Mm. And then they speak back to you. Yeah. What? Well, <laughs> what? What did or, you just say? At what speed? Yeah. Or even worse, you, I remember vividly one year I'd been, uh, I had a friend who was French, 
and uh, I've been speaking to him in French to improve mine and I really thought I was on top form with my French. I thought I was in a really good vein, right? And I vividly remember going over on the ferry, getting off the boat, going into the shop and uh, asking for two bottles of Evian water. Deux bottles de uh, Evian, s'il vous plaît, monsieur. And he looked at me like I'd murdered his gran. Yeah. They, yeah. He was just disgusted yeah. with my mangling of his, of his beautiful language. Indeed. And I don't really blame him. No. He was quite right. Quite right. Now, when the people use the English language, mm. and they make all the English, you know, they speak a little bit of Yoda. Um, uh, and people laugh. You go, well, hang on a minute. How many languages can you speak? Yeah, yeah. I mean, hats off to anyone who is bilingual. Or, or multilingual. You hear these people who speak six, seven languages. Absolutely amazing, isn't Makes it? Yeah. If only. If only. Well done to them. Anyway, one out of three on this week's pub quiz. <laughs> Not too bad. As much as I enjoyed those very complicated questions. Yes. <laughs> Any chance of something I might know the answer to next no. week? Or, no, oh, chance. no chance. No chance. The whole point of the pub quiz, isn't it? Let's investigate the incredibly waspish world of Dorothy Parker. Ah. Screenwriter, yes. poet, yes. satirist, and a critic from New York, a founding member of the Algonquin Roundtable, also known as the Vicious Circle, a group of writers and actors and critics and wits that gathered every day at the Algonquin Hotel for early lunch for about a decade from around about 1919, right? And they became very important, very influential uh, culturally because they would discuss and dissect the cultural world of the time. And from those chats, the various members would use the wisecracks and the one-liners and the wordplay that they came up with just in their general conversation to fill their newspaper columns, which were in various papers around the country. So from that little room in the hotel there, a lot of kind of thinking about the cultural events of the time were, were shaped, weren't they? So later on, she was a screenwriter. Yep. She earned two Academy Award nominations. She worked on a couple of dozen or so films. She became a vocal supporter of civil rights, founded the Hollywood Anti-Nazi League, was suspected of being a communist, investigated by the FBI in the McCarthy era. But... Probably, maybe maybe the thing she became most famous for was her cruel put-downs. Pithy so, wit. Pithy oh, wit. Oh, lovely. Dorothy Parkerisms. Yes. Beautiful. So, when former President Calvin Coolidge died, a man of famously few words, her remark was, how could they tell? <laughs> lovely. A favourite of mine is, if you want to know what God thinks of money, just look at the people he gave it to. Ha! Isn't that lovely? And how about the first thing I do in the morning is brush my teeth and sharpen my tongue. <laughs> Glorious. She also said men don't make passes at girls who wear glasses. <laughs> Brilliant poet. Yes, I would recommend 
uh, Dorothy Parker, the collected Dorothy Parker, just about everything she ever wrote is in there, from mm. the short stories to the longer stories to the poetry. Uh, the book reviews as well. Um, wonderful stuff, the book reviews, because obviously uh, each one deals with a book long, you know, published donkey's years ago. Mm. So it, it points you towards other things as well to read. But magnificent. And well done for, for picking up on Dorothy Parker, one of my absolutely favourite waspish women. I've got a couple more things for you I think you'll particularly appreciate. She said, I hate writing. I love having written. Yeah. You'll, that will appeal yeah, to you, right? To me. And here's one I've been using on my kids. I haven't realised, for years I've been using this on my kids. Well, I never realised it came from Dorothy Parker. Don't look at me in that tone of voice. Yep. Isn't yeah. that wonderful? Yeah. And actually, you mentioned her poems, and I, I picked out one. Oh, a little, good. Uh, a little bit of one. So I shall do this in my best poetry reading voice, which is uh, world-renowned. In youth, it was a way I had to do my best to please and change with every passing lad to suit his theories but now I know the things I know and do the things I do and if you do not like me so to hell my love with you brilliant what a lovely thing eh yes brilliant did you know this when she passed away in 1967 she bequeathed her estate to Martin Luther King and she had previously suggested that her own epitaph should be excuse my dust <laughs> what a woman the great Dorothy Parker I think that might be a good place to leave it this week excuse my dust yeah well thank you very much indeed for joining us join us again at the far end of the bar and in the meantime excuse our dust <laughs> That's time at the far end of the bar. You've been listening to Richard Lewis and Ben Orr. If you enjoyed your time with us, please don't forget to like and subscribe to make sure you catch the next episode. And find us on all the socials. Just search hashtag TFEOTB or email us at thefarendofthebar at gmail.com. Cheers! <laughs>